I'll invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. We're actually starting a short uh, new four-week series. Today's part one called Things That Are Hard to Do. And Pastor Aaron will be speaking to that a little bit more here in just a moment. But I'll invite Vicky to join us uh, to read the scriptures for us this morning. Good morning. This is God's word. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, revelries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you, do, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let us each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Amen. Thank you, Vicki. Good morning, church family. How are we doing? You guys good? I was kind of tentative. Are you feeling like the end of summer is starting to hit you, or what is it? Just uh, not enough coffee yet today? All right, it's good. Here's, the, I think, here's what I think it is. We are starting this new sermon series today. I'm Aaron, by the way, if you're new, one of the pastors. Uh, hi, thank you. <laughs> starting this new sermon series, and the, the, the backstory behind it is we as the elder team, we often talk and pray together as, uh, as a team about what we want to teach, what books of the Bible we want to go through. Our, our primary bread and butter is we like to take a book of the Bible and just go through it. We're going through the Gospel of John. We're about halfway, a little bit more than halfway. And so in four weeks, we'll, dump, we'll jump uh, right back into the Gospel of John. But we had a few weeks in between the Psalms and, and jumping into John. We said, hey, we've had these different ideas, things we've talked about. You know, one of the other guys will show up to the elder meeting and say, oh, you know, we really should talk about this, or we should preach a sermon on that. Or, and by we, they mean, Aaron, you should preach a sermon on that. And I was like, thanks for the suggestion, guys. And so what we kind of did is we were like, hey, there's this grab bag of topics, these handful of different topics things that we feel like God's putting on our hearts as the elder team to share with the church and to teach on. And, and then we said, wouldn't it be kind of fun to just maybe put a little bit of a, a informal poll up or a survey and kind of see what things uh, people are wrestling with and would like to hear and this idea of things that are hard to do. And so the premise is this, following Jesus is hard. Jesus said, if anyone is going to follow me, they need to deny themselves, pick up their cross daily, and follow me. So you tell me, does that sound like the sales pitch of, of, you know, gurus in today's society who are trying to gain followers? Does that sound somebody who says, you need to count the cost? It's going to be challenging and difficult to follow me, Jesus said. 
And so along the journey, different times, different seasons, different groups of people, different cities, different age ranges, certain things at different times are harder to do than others. So here's what we are going to do for the next four weeks. Next Sunday, things that are hard to do, share the gospel. Just quick show of hands. Anybody ever like, man, it's kind of hard sometimes to share the gospel. You ever have felt fear about that? Okay, good. The following week, September 2nd, it's on a holiday weekend. Maybe attendance will be low. I don't know. Uh, things that are hard to do, engage in politics. I heard a groan. Who groans? Okay. We're, yeah. <laughs> uh, the Bible has a lot to say about politics and how we as humans relate to each other in the city, in the polis. The last week, week things that are hard to do. Uh, this was the second most popular suggestion. It's heal from church hurts. And then this week, as you can see on the slide behind me, this was the most popular request, suggestion, feedback that we got from people is, how do I, in love and with grace, confront the sin that I see in somebody else that I love? I got text messages, Facebook messages, emails. So this one is where we're going today. We're in Galatians 5 before we do anything else. Things that are hard to do. What you don't need is my opinions on that. What we all need is the truth of God's word brought to life by his spirit. Would you pray with me? God, we need your help. We gather here today and, and, and confess that in fact, everything that we are called to in the Christian life is beyond our natural ability. We can't follow you on our own. We have not followed you. We don't want to follow you in and of our flesh and our sinfulness. And so Holy Spirit, would you stir in our hearts this morning? Would you stir in us and awaken in us a desire to want to follow you and to, to even believe, God, that these things that seem so hard and so challenging to do are possible because of your spirit? God, would you help me to communicate well, to communicate truthfully? God, would you take any walls or, or, or defenses that might build up around this topic and this subject, would you help them to fall down now so that we might be receptive to your truth and that you want to speak to us today. We pray that this time would be glorifying to Jesus and our, our focus and our attention would go to him. It's in his name we pray. And everyone said, amen. All right, you've had this experience before. Maybe, maybe you're out to lunch with a coworker. You don't know them super well. Maybe you're at someone's house, someone here from the church. You just met them. You're getting lunch together. You're eating. You're enjoying conversation. And then all of a sudden you see it and you can't unsee it. Just a big blob of mustard right on the lip, right on the, you know, the, the food chunk is right there. In fact, it could happen this afternoon at the barbecue, all right? We're there, you're hanging out. Anybody ever had a situation like this? And then like, there's two things that happen. Number one, that's the only thing that you can think about, focus on, or see. Anybody like me on that? It's like, once you've seen, like, you have food on your face, I can't hear a word that you're saying. And like those moms, like the moms in there, like you're like reaching for a napkin. You're going to reach over there. You don't know them well, but you're going to like, by golly, take care of business right now. But for those of you who are normal human beings and not moms, licking, right? you ever like, okay, I need to say something. I need to point it out. But then again, anybody like me, this like show of hands, like, I, do I want to say something? Anybody ever have that feeling of like fear? Should I, should I say something? Should I? It feels awkward, right? You have food on your face. It's obvious and evident to everyone around you. No one else is saying anything. I guess I'm going to have to do it, and you just don't like to do it. Now, that's true about something pretty trivial, right? Food on the face. You know, a, a hanging thing from the nose, uh, right? 
the, the fly is open or something, right? Like it's, and by the way, it is an act of love to say something like, hey, Aaron, I know you're about to go preach, but you got some of that there uh, spinach omelet still in your teeth there. I'm like, oh, thank you. Because no one would hear the message if I was delivering it with a big green thing. Actually, do I have, I didn't ask anybody, right? It's, if that's the case with something relatively trivial like food in the teeth or food on the mouth, how much more so when it's actually something serious that you see in the life of somebody you care about? There's attitudes that just come out, words that leak out, the way they treat their kids, the way they speak to their spouse, the way they're handling their money. It's like once you see it, you can't unsee it. And if you're anything like me, and I think anything like the majority of us, it's not fun to say something. In fact, I think there's an objection that's raised here, people within the church, but particularly those not a part of the church, like, there you go. Like, this is the worst part of Christianity right here. A bunch of detective Sherlock Holmes, sin-sniffing people who want to go around and bludgeon each other with hammers talking about all the sin. And you're doing this wrong, and you're doing that wrong, and you're doing this wrong. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Have you ever felt that way? Do you have friends, neighbors, relatives who feel that way? Like, what's with the Christians wanting to beat each other up over sin. It's a valid objection. It's a valid question. It's a valid concern. The point that I want to make to you today, and and it's a point that comes from this passage in Galatians, is this. Confronting sin in other Christians is really hard to do. But it is something that God asks us to do. He asks us to do it so that we may grow to be more like him. He asks us to do it. And there's a lot that I could say about this, but I think that you can see fairly clearly here the main point coming actually out of chapter 6, verse 2, where it says, bear one another's burdens, and in so doing, this is how you're going to fulfill the law of Christ. That's a big statement. Hey, do you want to know how to fulfill the law of Christ? Like everything that God would require of us? Here's how you do it. Bear one another's burdens. What's also interesting about this verse, I've, I long have used this verse in conversations about community and biblical relationships, right? How are you going to bear one another's burdens if you're not actually in relationship with other people and you're sharing your burdens with them and they're sharing their burdens with you? I love this verse. And I think it relates to that, but I had a little bit of a course correction this week when I realized that this verse the bearing one another's burdens happens right in the middle of this discussion about sin and the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And if anyone is caught in a transgression, you should restore them in a spirit of gentleness, but watch out on yourself. And right in the middle of it, this whole verse about bearing one another's burdens is is smack dab in the middle of it. And I believe that the point that the apostle Paul is making under the inspiration of the spirit is the way that you're going to bear one another's burdens is by love lovingly giving and receiving correction about sin. Let's see if, let's see if I've, I've got this in a minute here. I want to back out, give you a little context. The book of Galatians, we're not doing a series on it. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but it might be helpful to know the book of Galatians was a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in a city called Galatia. 
And it's, this is after Jesus died and rose again and all these communities of faith started springing up. And you know what's funny? If you've been a part of the church for any length of time, you hear people say things like, we got to get back to the way the first original church was, you know, like the Acts chapter two, two church. And anybody ever heard that said? Well, here's the problem. Every single letter in the New Testament was written to a church that was completely jacked up. And it's like, well, yeah, be careful what you wish for. Yes, there's some amazing things about that early church, but they had problems. And in this particular church, the Apostle Paul is writing to address a specific problem that they're really messing up the gospel itself. Look what he says in chapter one, verses six and seven. He says, I'm astonished. Like, I'm shocked that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the, what's the word, Sound City? Into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. By the way, it's not that there is another gospel. There is no other gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Uh Uh-oh. Like Paul is not happy about it. Paul is not happy about this distortion that's taking place of the gospel. Chapter two, verse 16, he identifies what the gospel is. He says, we know that a person listen to this, is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Is this good news to anybody here this morning? How do you know that you're justified? How do you know that that things line up, that, that you and God are in right relationship? Is it by doing a bunch of good works? Is it by dogmatically trying to keep all the commandments and do all the right things? No, it's by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, the only one who ever lived a perfect life. He's the only one that went to the cross and atoned for the sins of the world by shedding his blood and dying. And oh yeah, by the way, rising from the dead, conquering over Satan's sin and death, that's how we are saved by placing our faith in him. Amen? This is the gospel. So we who also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. Repetition is important, right? Again, not by works of the law because by the works of the law, who will be justified? Not, no one, none, none one will. Not a single one. None more. Yeah, exactly. You have to forgive me. I'm rusty. I haven't preached in a month. So let's see it. We'll see how this goes. I practiced on the 9 a.m. service. Not a single person will ever be made right in the sight of God by keeping all the works of the law. We're made right in the sight of God, brought into right relationship, adopted like we just sang because of his grace and we put our faith in him. Now, It's really important to remember that because that is the foundation of everything else that Paul is going to build on. So throughout this chapter, speaking of confrontation, I mean, he's pretty upset. And he brings some words of correction and some words of confrontation, some stern rebukes. Like in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? That's subtle. Not... (laughs) Right? Like if I stood up here and was like, hey, foolish sounds, you bunch of fools, right? Like I get, there are preachers, I guess, who talk like that to their churches. I don't think I'm supposed to be one of them, but we could try. I don't, I don't want to, but you, you hear that? It's just who has bewitched you? What kind of spell are you under? Or if you really want the sternest rebuke in chapter five, there are these people who are insisting that the way you're going to be right before God is through keeping the Jewish ritual and tradition of circumcision, and he's mad about that. He says, I, I, I want, there's, well, 
It's in the Bible, so I'll say it. He says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Like, oh, really? You like circumcision? Keep going, right? Like, that's basically what he's saying. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just delivering the news. Like, stern rebukes, right? That's a pretty intense thing for someone who is a leader in the church, an author of the scriptures to say. And then here we land in chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... Those of you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. <laughs> okay. By the way, don't you just love how in that verse in, in 6 1 it says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, your flavor of sin might look different or taste different than somebody else's flavor of sin. But who can be forgiven of sin? Anyone. What sin? Any. God's grace is that massive. God's, God's grace is that massive. So if you're sitting here today thinking, I hear, I hear you saying this, but you don't know what I've done. You're right, maybe I don't. God does. And he still had these words be written down in the scripture. Anyone, any transgression, can be restored in a spirit of gentleness. This also helps us as we wade into these waters about how to bring words of correction to know that that person in your, in your community group, that person in your neighborhood who loves Jesus and they've stumbled and they've fallen into some sin, they're not beyond the reach of God's redeeming grace. So, let's look at a few foundations that are really important for us to have in place as we get into it. I'm going to get practical in a minute. But I want to continue to lay the foundations because if we jump too quickly to the practicals and don't have solid foundations, we'll wobble. This is the first foundation. We see this in 19 through 21. It says, sin is obvious, okay? The works of the flesh are evident. And there's this list. There's this long laundry list. Maybe you noticed it as, as Vicky was doing our scripture reading today, right? You get these words like sexual immorality, idolatry, sorcery, uh, drunkenness, orgies, these so-called, uh, maybe the, you know, bad sins, extra bad sins. Now, maybe you haven't had to sit down with someone in your community group and bring a word of correction for their sorcery, okay? If you have, I would like to talk to you after the service because that sounds super interesting. We can chuckle about it. Maybe that's not your particular flavor of sin. Actually, when I was in Uganda last year, there are Christian brothers and sisters that have to bring correction to each other because in addition to going to the scriptures, in addition to attending the worship service, then they also go pull out their talisman and go see the witch doctor to summon the ancestral spirits. And this is not strange or chuckle-worthy in their culture. And in fact, there's things that would be strange and you know, laugh-worthy about things that we do. We're all fallen short of the glory of God. And sometimes in the church, we can focus on these idolatry and sorcery, drunkenness, orgies. We'll look at the next set of words. It's kind of hidden right in the middle there, right? Uh, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Rivalries. Rivalries. And like, I don't know for sure. I'm pretty sure that doesn't apply to sports. At least I hope. But like rivalries, like my team, your team, my camp, your camp. Ooh, maybe we'll get into that in the politics one in a few weeks. Ooh, I don't know. Dis uh, nobody's going to come that Sunday. All right. 
dissensions and divisions, right? Oh, I don't have sorcery going on in my life. I'm not attending, you know, orgies or something, but you are divided from a brother in Christ, from a sister in Christ. You're not living in peace and you've given place to a spirit of strife. And then I love what the apostle Paul says. Oh yeah, and things like these, Just in case you, like one of those little children who becomes a lawyer, well, mom, you actually said don't do this, 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 and this. I know I was jumping off the roof of the garage, but you said not to jump off the windows of the garage, and so I didn't do what you didn't say. You know what I'm talking about, right? And you're like, doggone it, kid, you better grow up and become a lawyer and make a ton of money because you're driving me nuts right now. You ever do that, Paul? And the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says just, and anything else that looks like that. Don't jump off the roof of the garage. Don't jump out the windows of the garage. Just stay away from the garage, right? I warn you, Paul says, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Yikes. Now this is, we need to be careful here because if you just snatched that verse out of the context of the passage, out of the context of the book of Galatians overall, it could look as though Paul was saying, if you do bad things, you don't go to heaven. If you do bad things, you're not saved. What did Paul just say? What did I just go to great lengths to emphasize to you from chapters one and two? We are not saved by keeping the works of the law. We're saved by the grace of God through placing our faith in Jesus Christ. But what Paul wants us to know is that if you are truly in Christ, there should be an expectation that your life is going to start to look different. Believe that the New Testament in particular, the whole of Scripture, but the New Testament in particular, teaches an ethic of we are all growing, we are all changing from one degree of glory to another, we're all being perfected. But Paul wants you to know that if your life is marked by things like these, if you continue in these practices, make a habit of living this way, you very likely run the risk of not proving to be one of the disciples and true followers of Jesus. So as scary as that sounds, as stern as that sounds, it is a consistent warning throughout the pages of the Bible that yes, you're saved by grace. No, you're not saved by keeping the works of the law. But one of the ways that God's grace is proven out over time is that your life is going to look different. I want to go back to the very first phrase though. He says this, the works of the flesh are, what's the word there, Sound City? Evident. Various translations will say like apparent or apparent obvious or plain to see. In the Greek, you look up the root of the word, it actually is related to the word for shining. It's like when somebody gets that dollop of mustard on their face and it's just obvious. It's as obvious as the mustard on your face, right? Or is that a saying? No, it's not. But it is now. Uh, Sometimes, (laughs) let me say it this way. You are probably not as good at covering up and cleaning up and hiding your sin as you think you are. And I don't say that to you in judgment or finger wagging or condemnation. I just want you to know that the garbage in your life, people can see it. Those who know you best can really see it. And you might think that you're putting on a good show, but my My contention is you're not hiding it that well. And actually, my invitation is drop the facade because it's in openness and transparency before God where his grace can truly be experienced. He contrasts it. He says that's what the sinful 
stuff looks like. It's just obvious. And he says this, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. How many have this memorized still from Sunday school growing up? Okay. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. You can have as much of these things as you want. It's like I say, I say this with my kids sometimes. If my kids come up to me and say, hey, can I have a candy? It's like, all right, you know, sometimes in moderation, we'll have a treat. If my kids come up to me and say, dad, can I please have some like raw veg- green vegetables? Do you know what the answer is? Always. No matter what time, day or night, yes. Help yourself. You want, you want some broccoli? Knock yourself out. There's no law against such things. God's, God's saying to us, like, love, joy, peace. You can, have, you can have as much as you want. It's really good for you. But the point that I, I love in this, in the context of our passage here, is this. What struck me is we're talking about bearing one another's burdens. Look how communal all of those terms are. Like, can you really have love if there are no people around you to love? Like you could love your possessions. You could love a pizza. You could love a sunset. But that's not love as God defines love. Can you, really, can you really have peace in a mountain cabin all by yourself, alone from everyone? No, no Twitter, uh, no social media. Like, can you really have peace? Well, on the one hand, you're like, yeah, that sounds amazing, right? I can sleep in, the kids aren't going to wake me up, no social media fighting. But is that true peace? Is that peace as God defines it? Or does the peace that God defines say, no, you're still going to be in a relationship with a bunch of weirdos, and you can be okay with it. Faithfulness, gentleness. How are you going to practice gentleness if there are no other people? The point is this. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but just, it's communal. Your ungodliness or your godliness, how you live your life has an impact on those around you, particularly those who you love and who love you the most. And the gospel frees us to confess and to confront. Verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus. Belong. If you're an underliner or taking notes in your Bible, circle that word. You belong to Christ Jesus. Those who, who are in that place have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So again, there's this, there's this line of demarcation. Hey, if you belong to Jesus, your passions, your desires, those things that you naturally want, they should look different. So that's what I said a minute ago about the expectation that our lives are going to look different. But I, it also brings up another interesting point here. Listen, before you go around confronting people, you need to understand that the expectation is different for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Growing up in the church and being a pastor, I am, often, I am often saddened when I hear Christians, well-meaning Christians, who are shocked and outraged and offended that non-Christians act like non-Christians. And I know it sounds silly, but it's like when, when pagans are out there paganing, like why would we expect there to be Why would we expect them to act like Christians? No, we are talking about bringing loving correction into the life of someone who is professing faith in Jesus Christ. Again, you can have opportunities. I had had a conversation with a non-Christian maybe a month ago. I said, well, look, this is what I believe and this is what I see. And I believe that, man, if God loves me and he, he, he saved me and this is the better way to live life, you can have that conversation. But can we lose the outrage can we lose the shock as Christians? Like, I cannot believe what those people are doing and everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah! And we should not be outraged about it, but devastated and brokenhearted. Those who belong to Christ Jesus, that's what we're talking about. But if, oh, this is such good news. 
I'm just getting warmed up. I'm running out of time. I got to go faster. Listen, if you belong to Christ Jesus, you belong to him, like, like in his grip of grace, secure. We talked about this back in John, like just loved, adopted, forgiven, justified, saved. Then you have nothing to fear from either bringing correction or receiving correction. Nothing, nothing to fear. Why? Because God loves you. His pronouncement over you is righteous in my sight because of what Jesus has done. You belong to Jesus. So now correction can come and can go, can be given and can be received, not in an attitude of fear, not in a spirit of, oh, I can't believe that this person saw this thing. Look, your sin is obvious. The people around you need your life to to be built up in the fruit of the spirit and you belong to Jesus anyway, so it's not gonna be that big of a deal. Amen? With that said, let me get practical because this passage gets practical. Here are five things, okay? On how to bring correction. Five things. The first one is this. Weigh the seriousness. You need to evaluate how serious this is. And I say this to you because when we're looking through that list, right, there were some sins that were, I mean, they seem very serious. There are some sins that maybe, again, we call them those respectable sins, ones that we tolerate and allow in the church. All sin is poison. All of it's poison. But there are some sins that are even stronger poison concentrate. And verses like, I'll just mention this from Proverbs 19.11. It says, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is, his, it is his glory to overlook an offense. So there are times where you need to just bite your tongue. How many of you who are parents know this, right? Like if you wanted to bring correction into your child's life every moment of every, every time they did anything wrong, what else would you do? First John 5, this is another New Testament letter and it's probably complicating the waters a little bit, but, but he, he talks about this difference. There's sins that do not lead to death and then there are sins that do lead to death. Like, I thought all sin led to death. He's like, well, there's some sin that does not lead to death, so pray for that, but all wrongdoing is sin, but there's some sin that doesn't lead to death. What are you saying, John? The, the point is this. I could go to maybe eight or 10 different places in scripture and show you sometimes, like, all sin is very serious, but sometimes it's exceedingly serious, and you have to speak up. Other times, you might need to just, I'm gonna wait. I'm gonna pick my battle. I'm gonna wait for the right opportunity, the right moment so that you don't just go around looking for confrontation every which way you go, okay? Number two, trust the Spirit. It says in verse 25, if we have been given the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. Hey, Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living within you. And that's amazing for many reasons, but it means also, if you're trying to speak to someone and bring correction that has love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, well, how are you going to do that? By trusting in the spirit within you. This means you might need to take a, a few days and pray or like really pray. Like, hey, I want to talk to this person. God, would you help me? Would you help me have the right words to say? Would you trust that, that God's actually going to work in you and, and you don't actually have the ability to bring a word of correction that's going to do anybody any good anyways. It's all God and his grace. So trust the spirit. Number three, live humbly. This passage is just over and over and over again marked with instructions about humility. Verse 26 of chapter five, let us not become conceited, okay? 
Think about this. If you're going to bring correction to somebody, conceit would say, there is no possible way that I could be seeing this wrong. Versus an attitude of humility says, hey, I might have seen this wrong. I thought I saw some mustard on your face, but maybe it was just like the reflection off of your watch or something. I'm speaking of your soul, right? Mustard on your soul. And the, anyways, you could be wrong, so don't be conceited. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, keep a watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Or verse 3 says, if any of you think you're something when you're nothing, you are, you are deceived in yourself. So when you go to somebody, you're like, I can't believe that you would do this thing. Watch out. That is a deadly, deadly attitude. But for the grace of God, you go right there as well. And again, maybe your flavor of sin is a little bit different than theirs, but we all are equally in need of God's grace. So let's practice some humility as we bring correction. It might be helpful to even say something like, hey, I could be wrong, but I believe I'm seeing this thing in your life and I want to speak it to you. Number four, Practice gentleness. And now I know that sounds easy, but let me get even more practical. What I mean by practicing gentleness, it means you need to take into account things like your voice or your face or your body language, right? Uh, your voice. Have you, ever, have you ever heard yourself on like a voicemail or you ever heard an audio recording of yourself? How, does that, how do you like that? Is that horrible? Here's reality check. That's what everybody else around you hears all the time. <laughs> And there may be things that you do with your voice that you don't realize. Every once in a while, I have to listen back to one of these sermons to, you know, send it to somebody or update something on the website or whatever. I hear myself, oh my gosh, is that what I sound like? Well, well, they're still here, so I guess I'll keep going with this. This is my voice. Your face. Think about your face and the effect your facial expressions have. Uh, Psychologists and sociologists tell us that, that, you know, probably upwards of 90% of communication is nonverbal. And our minds, are, our brain is just an incredible thing and the neurons are firing and we're, you read things like the corners of somebody's mouth has like this massive impact on what they're saying. The, the words could be the exact same in the corners of their mouth, slightest little bit different. I remember one time we were, <laughs> I'll tell this story here and then I didn't ask for permission, but we were at a, a, a church, like a small group thing. It was, it was kind of a medium-sized group. We're sitting in a circle and we're talking and having a discussion and prayer and all this stuff. And, and afterwards, this guy who was sitting directly across the circle from my wife came walking over to her and goes, listen, are you like mad at me or something? Like, what's going on? Like, you were giving me the stink eye the entire time. Like, you're like, every time I started talking to you, glared across the circle. You remember this? Glared across the circle. And, and she was like, she's sitting there thinking like, I, I couldn't see you. I was squinting to try to make out your face. I think I need to go get glasses. And so, like, had this huge impact on it. Like, no, this wasn't judgment. It was just you know, nearsightedness and needed to be corrected with lenses and not a heart change. It was just an eyeball change, right? So, but your face has incredible weight, the tone of voice that you use. I remember talking with somebody who, they, they spoke a word of correction. They didn't even realize this. The, the person, uh, love them dearly, they, they're just kind of an even keel sort of a person. And then they gave this word of correction one time and it, it just spiked. It was like, for most of us, like for me, it'd be like, is he even alive? It was just this little blip. But the person who was receiving the correction was like, felt like the weight of the world fell on them because it was just such a difference from the normal, just kind of even keels. It was just a little bit more animated. And they're like, oh my gosh, they hate me. Or here's a, here's a really good way to practice gentleness. One thing at a time. One point focus. When I was a music teacher, 
uh, a lot of the training I would do would really focus in on this because when you sit a child down in front of you and ask them to play a stringed instrument, do you know what they do wrong? Everything, yes. Literally, what don't they do wrong? And if I wanted to, as a music teacher, take a little child who's trying their best and they're giving some effort and say, okay, well, you need to fix your fingers and your tone's not very good and you also your rhythm is way off and you get the metronome out and you need to sit up taller and you need to put some emotion into it and also you play the C sharp it was supposed to be a C. Like, all those different things would crush the child and you know what they're going to do? Walk out and never pick up the guitar again. And sometimes we Christians do that to one another by saying, I see this and I see this and also you did this thing and then four years ago you did this other thing. Can we just say being gentle might look like just bringing up one thing and letting it simply be that? Hey, I love you. I could be wrong. I've noticed this thing. It seems like sometimes you're excessively angry and stern with your kids. Can we just talk about that? Simple, one thing at a time. Practice gentleness. It's not ungentle or, or rough to bring it up, but maybe piling on or, or losing control of your temper, your facial expressions might be. And then fifth, aim for restoration. Hey, this is huge. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, You who are spiritual, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Far too often, we like to go in, deliver our shot across the bow, and then head for the hills and say, I hope you get it figured out. That is not what God calls us to. If you are going to bring a word of correction, you must be committed to seeing the well-being of that person through to the other side. Amen? You must say, hey, I love you. I don't exactly know what this looks like, but I'm committed to you. I care for you. I want to walk alongside you. And I want to see this brought through to the other side. And in fact, I'll say it this boldly. If you're not committed to their restoration, then keep your mouth shut. You probably will do more harm than good by just dropping truth bombs on people as though that was some noble thing when what in fact Christ calls us to bear one another's burdens, restore them, see them through. All right, now, gone to this point, and here's where I feel, here's how, here's how I feel. Here's how I felt prepping it this week, here's how I feel right now in this moment. That might be helpful, but not really. It's still really, really hard to do. It's still really challenging to muster the courage to do it, to remember all these different things. It's not any easier. I don't, I don't know if I've helped thus far. But I think there is one thing that is really, really helpful to see where Paul continues, verse four, but, but, a little transition word, but let each person test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. All right, anybody been paying attention? <laughs> verse 3, verse 2, I should say, bear one another's burdens. Verse 5, each one bear your own burden. Paul, are you talking out of both sides of your mouth? 
Are we supposed to bear each other's burdens or is each person supposed to take responsibility for themselves? Survey says, yes. yes. Hey, you guys are good. That's right. The focus shifts and the commandment shifts from go and bring correction, go and restore people to, hey, you got to check yourself. You need to test yourself. You need to evaluate yourself, which is wonderful because <laughs> do you know what's harder than giving correction? Receiving correction. There may be some of you who need to bring correction into somebody's life. This week, this month, I don't know. But I almost guarantee you, every single one of us, before we put our heads on our pillows this evening to go to sleep, we could probably use some feedback and advice and correction in our lives. Whether from God's word, from his spirit, or from his people. So this really actually gets at the point of this message and this teaching is it's not actually about bringing correction. It's about receiving correction. And that's the way you're going to be able to grow as a deliverer of correction. My wife, uh, she's reading uh, Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte and she's sitting around the other night reading. She's like, oh my gosh, listen to this. And she, I don't think you had any idea about what I was specifically preaching. I'm like, that's good. I got to read it to people. This is what this Charlotte Bronte Bright kid, got a great future ahead of her. Um, that's a joke. Classic literature. She's dead. Um, but she said, Ahab didn't like Micaiah because he never prophesied anything good about him but evil. Probably he liked that sycophant son of Canaanah better. Yet might Ahab have escaped a bloody death had he stopped his ears to flattery and opened them to faithful counsel. You can read the story in Second Kings. King Ahab goes, I hate this prophet Micaiah. He never says anything nice about me. All he ever says is these things. It's like, yeah, well, Ahab, have you ever thought to consider for a minute that maybe you really should like listen to what the prophet's saying? No, give me that, give me that Zedekiah guy. I like the sweet nothings he whispers into my ear. You and I actually really need correction, feedback, if we're to thrive, if we're to grow. Uh, a number of years ago, I guess maybe three or four years ago, I, I sat through a lecture. I heard a lecture from a woman. Her name is Sheila Heen. And she is a professor, a teacher at Harvard Law School and has, developed, has basically had a 30-year-long career devoted to helping people give and receive feedback better. Uh, I believe she is a Christian. Her writings are just written as kind of like a, like a business guru, an educational guru. And she co-authored this book uh, with a guy named Doug Stone called Thanks for the Feedback. And I reread the book this last week, uh, it's really nice not being in seminary anymore. I can just pick up a book and read it because not because somebody told me I had to because I wanted to. But I love this. It's this, this book, Thanks for the Feedback, and I saw it sitting on the shelf. It says, The Science and Art of Receiving Feedback Well, and then a little sub-subheader. Even when it's off-base, unfair, poorly delivered, and frankly, you're not in the mood. I was like, ooh, I need to get this book. The lecture was really helpful. But what they say is that very often our approach, whether it's in business, but I think it applies to the church, we spend so much time trying to tell people how to give feedback. And those of you who work, you know, in, in maybe in a corporate setting and you have bosses and managers and it's all about how to deliver feedback, and they're like, we don't do it anywhere near enough training on how to receive feedback. This is a quote from the book. Training managers on how to give feedback can be helpful, but if the receiver isn't willing or able to absorb the feedback, then there's only so far persistence or even skillful delivery can go. It doesn't matter how much authority or power a feedback giver has, the receivers are in control of what they do and don't let in, 
how they make sense of what they're hearing and whether they choose to change. Pushing harder rarely opens the door to genuine learning. The focus should not be on teaching feedback givers to give. The focus should be on feedback receivers helping us all to become more skillful listeners. So surprise, today's sermon is called How to Confront Others in Love, but really what it's about is how to receive confrontation. How to, how to, how to have your heart so grounded in the gospel that when someone points something out to you, you say, man, thank you for that. I need to chew on that. Let me pray about that. Let me take that to Jesus. Let me give you three things practically what this looks like. Number one, really listen well. Really listen well. Sometimes what happens is when someone gives you feedback or correction, you end up hearing something that's not actually what they said. Whether that's because they're playing on your fears or your insecurities, or maybe, just let's be honest, maybe they're not that good at giving feedback or correction. Make sure you really listen well. Maybe you need to take some time. Hey, thank you for bringing that to me. I'd like to take some time to pray about it, to think about it, to journal about it. Can we talk again, maybe tomorrow or next week after I've had a little bit of time to chew on it? Because, you know, is anybody like me, when somebody brings some correction to you, your first instinct is to go, nah, probably not. Is that just me or is there anybody else like me? In that? Like you, somebody, okay, thank you, Heather. Okay, we got one other honest person, right? Somebody brings correction like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm fine. For those of you who are like teachers or your coaches or something like that, you're like, but I'm telling you, I, I can see you. Let me, let me help you. And, and, and if you're anything like me, you just don't listen well sometimes. Paul says, you got to test yourself. So listen well. Make sure you really understand what's being said. Don't assume a bunch of stuff that's not being said. Number two, Don't reject the messenger. Don't reject the messenger. Okay, we would all love to have a loving, gracious, you know, maternal or paternal figure. They've been through some things in life. They're, they're wise, they're calm, they're older, you know, like a, like a, like a, like Obi-Wan Kenobi, but Christian or, you know, just like really gracious, and they're the ones that deliver the feedback. And if somebody like that delivered it, boy, I'd sure be able to hear it. But do you know the reality of life? You know who's going to give you the feedback in your life? The people that you have in your life. And you know what you know about the people in your life? Things. And if you're not careful, you can discount everything that's said to you because you can see the flaws in them. Well, who do they think they are? What's, what? What's going on with them? And remember what Paul said. Your boast isn't going to be in your neighbor. You don't get to boast in your neighbor. They were so good at giving me that you know, feedback and that confrontation. No, you need to check for yourself. Don't reject the messenger. It's, it's actually tragic. I've seen this happen in the life of someone that I was at one time closer to where they, they were some pretty obvious character flaws and person after person over the years kept trying to bring those words of correction to them. And every single time, yeah, but they... Yeah, but they, yeah, but they. And they could discount every word of correction or advice that was ever given because the people who delivered it weren't perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. All of your feedback is gonna come from messed up people. So don't reject the messenger. Don't reject the message outright just because the person who's giving it to you isn't perfect. And then number three, really work to own your response. You can't control, if somebody comes at you, maybe they're angry, Maybe they're bumbling over their words. Maybe they do pile three, four, five different things on. They don't just stick to one thing. They, they probably don't do a good job, but, but listen, you can't control that. Fruit of the Spirit is not others' control. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. There is only one person on planet Earth that you have any semblance of control over, and that's yourself. 
So you need to watch your heart, I, particularly for some of you who are, um, I, this, is not a, this is not a slight or a put down at all, but when I say like emotionally sensitive, you have a very tender heart and someone brings correction or feedback, hey, you might want to think about working on this area. What you hear is, I'm the worst, I'm awful, every area of my life is horrible. And someone's like, no, I'm just trying to talk about this one area. Not every person hates you. Not everything in your life is a complete failure. God's wanting to grow you in this area. And so, so work on owning your response. Man, that's really hard to hear. I'm kind of flooded with emotion right now. Maybe I could take a little bit of time to pray about it, chew on it. Let me make sure I'm really hearing you. Take some deep breaths, and I want to walk forward with you. Here's what I want to leave you with is this. Oftentimes, we, we, you know, actually every week we do discussion questions and prayer points, things for us to, in our community groups, talk about and pray about, but I want to leave you with an action step. I want to leave you with homework today. You're all like, oh no, Aaron's back from a month of not preaching. He's giving us homework. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because if this is something that's hard to do, then I want to help us have some sort of actionable, tangible step to walk it forward. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I want you to choose someone in your life who you know loves you, cares for you, has your best interest in mind, and I want you to go blow them up with things they're doing wrong. No, just kidding. (laughs) Seeing if you're paying attention. I want you to go and ask them, hey, is there anything that you see in my life that I could just grow in, Maybe it's sin I need to repent of. Maybe it's some ways I just need to get more wise. Or Is there anything you see in my life that, that I could grow in? Give them the opportunity to practice loving confrontation in an easier sort of way by you being the first to go and say, hey, I need to receive some feedback in my life. Would you be willing to share with me? Just one thing. And I, I put down there for some of you overachievers because you're going to ask a person you know, and you might have that response. And I, I don't think that's true. So you're going to go ask a second person, but no more than three, Okay. And if all three of them say the same thing, then it's like the divine counsel has spoken, right? You might need to really pay attention to that area. Put into practice this listening and receiving confrontation more so than giving confrontation. And that's all founded upon God's love for you. Listen, friends, you are loved. Christ knew every awful rotten thing about you before he went to the cross. You are loved. You are safe. You are secure. And even though the people in your life, yes, we're all imperfect, Christ loves you. And you're now free to receive love and correction and even at times give love and correction because we belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus, would you help us to be the kind of church community that practices grace with each other? God, we want to even repent before you of times where we have been guilty of just blowing up other people or acting out, lashing out in judgment. God, we want to be filled with your grace. We want to be filled with the the grace and the peace and the security that comes from knowing that we truly belong to you. And God, would you help us to be able to bring loving correction? But God, even more so, would you help us to be able to receive correction and input and feedback as you seek to grow us and shape us to be more like you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, we're going to respond now to God and his grace. One of the ways we're going to respond is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. Uh, I'll say this. If you're a guest or a visitor, there's no pressure or obligation or arm twisting. Uh, And I'll say this. If you're a regular, there is no arm twisting, obligation, guilt, or pressure because the scripture clearly says that each one is to give what they've decided in their heart cheerfully, not under compulsion or reluctantly, 
We'll welcome our younger students class in to join us for this time of response. But I want to urge you all to give. Maybe, maybe one of the feedback things that you've heard is you're not good with your money. So if you need help with money, whether that's managing a budget or just practicing generosity, then you can give. But I encourage you to, to receive that from the Lord, not arm twisting from me. I want to go to 1 Corinthians 11 because we're going to celebrate the Lord's table in a moment here. This is what is written about this meal that we're going to celebrate. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, we celebrate communion as a church community every single week because we as as the elder team are convinced that we, like the people in Galatia, are prone to forget or distort the gospel. So every week we take the bread and we take the cup. It's not about our works. It's about Jesus' finished work on the cross. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord's. What do we do? Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Friends, this is where we say, God, I know you're growing me. I know you're shaping me. I know you're changing me. What's going on in my heart? What's going on in my life that I need to receive some correction in? Go before the Lord, receive his grace, confess, pray, repent, and then eat and drink with joy because you are loved by your God. God, I pray for this time of communion now as we enter in. God, as we just hold before you and allow you to search our hearts and our minds, God, I pray that you would help walls to fall down. God, things that we haven't wanted to consider about ourselves, maybe even things that people have spoken to us that are truthful, that maybe we've disregarded. God, would you bring those to mind right now as we pause to meditate and reflect and to allow you to search us. God, I pray that when we eat and we drink, we would do so knowing that you love us, that we're so secure in you. And God, then when we stand to our feet and sing and rejoice in you, I pray that we would be responding to you and your love. God, even as we sing about being sinners and and weak and wounded, but that we can run to you, Lord Jesus. Your love is that good. I pray all of us in your incredible name. Amen.